to you about Psalm 13, particularly because if you're like me, if you're like all human beings, you've had troubles in your life, right? And we read in Job 5, 7, humans are born to trouble, right? But some troubles are different from other kinds of troubles, right? Some troubles just drag on and on, and they just don't seem to get resolved. So, for instance, maybe you have some trouble with a teacher at school, right? And it just doesn't seem to get resolved. Or you have trouble with your boss, and that just drags on and on. Or maybe there are microaggressions happening in your neighborhood or your cancer treatments, or I'm thinking about little baby Hope, you know, and the doctor comes back and says, let's try another treatment, right? Or maybe your depression is just not lifting, or maybe there's more terrorism in this world. And I think as Christians, those troubles are bad enough. But as Christians, I think there's another aspect to suffering And suffering gets compounded by the fact that it seems like God is slow to act, or it seems even like sometimes God is absent. And so suffering is bad enough for the Christian, right? The liver transplant, the boss, the teacher, the terrorism. But there's also this sense that God's not intervening in the situation. And we know God has promised us in Deuteronomy 31, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. But sometimes in times of suffering, it just feels like it's dragging on and on, and we just don't see the evidence of God's presence in our life. And without that evidence, we suffer even more. So in the midst of these kinds of troubles, well-meaning people might say to you, and it very much makes sense. I think I've probably said these things myself. They might have quoted to you Philippians 4.4. Everybody know Philippians 4.4? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, right? But this might kind of feel like, have you ever had a paper cut and then you drop some lemon juice in it? It, it might hurt, right? And in Proverbs 25, this is what we read. We read, Like vinegar on a wound is like one who sings songs to a heavy heart. So rejoicing is tough to do when you're in the middle of suffering, right? Now, as Christians, we believe and we affirm strongly the truth of Philippians 4.4. But we also affirm the truth that we just read in Psalms 13, right? And what God is doing in Psalms 13 is offering us words about our suffering. He gives us lament psalms. Why? Because it's hard sometimes to put into words our own suffering. The Talmud, a Jewish book, has said, the deeper the sorrow, the less tongue it has. So it's hard sometimes to put into words what's really going on inside of us when things aren't going well. And lament psalms do that for us. They, in fact, help us to express our hurts to the one person who's capable and powerful enough 
to do something to change the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Now, if you're not familiar with Lament Psalms, and I was in that position just a few years ago, but one of the things you might not know is that almost half of the book of Psalms are actually Lament Psalms. It's kind of surprising, right? But they have, and they have a certain structure, and that structure, by the way, is in your bulletin. So there's a protest, and basically the protest is going to be, God, these circumstances are intolerable. I'm suffering. The petition is going to be a specific request that the psalmist makes, right? God, I need for you to do something in this particular situation. And then the last section is going to be praise. It's an expression of faith and certainty that God is going to intervene in this situation. So let's kind of see how that structure fits with our Psalm 13 that we just read. So the first two verses, verses 1 and 2, that's the protest. And in your in your Psalms, even in your, your uh, Bibles, there might actually be a little space between each one of these three parts of the psalm here, the lament psalm. But verses 1 and 2 are the protest. Verses two, uh, 3 and 4 are the petition. And then verses 5 and 6 are the praise. So let's go through each one of those sections and see what, what uh, the psalmist, in this case David, is telling us in Psalm 13. Okay, so the first two verses are... How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? So obviously the the protest here or the complaint that David is bringing to God is how long, right? David says it four times. He says, how long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Clearly, David is wondering, hey, this is dragging on and on here. How long is this going to stay the way it is? Now, by the way, in verse 2, when David says he's wrestling with his thoughts, what the idea of wrestling actually is that of planning. It's actually the word in Hebrew to take counsel or to plan. So uh, what's, what David is saying here is that he's, he's trying to plan a way out of his problems, right? He's trying to get out of these difficulties, but nothing's working. And all of these failed plans just add sorrow to sorrow. Now, different commentators have talked about different kinds of events that might have prompted the writing of Psalm 13 in David's life. And we don't know which ones they are, but let me come up with some examples of different things that might have been going on in David's life for him to write this Psalm 13. Okay, so one example might be the fact that he's anointed king by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. So keep track of this, 1 Samuel 16. But it's about 15 years, about 15 years go by 
before he's anointed king in Hebron in 2 Samuel 1. Like, you have to get to the end of 1 Samuel and start 2 Samuel before he's finally anointed king over just one part of Israel in Hebron. And then another five or so years go by before he's finally anointed king in Jerusalem. So that's about, all in all, about 20 years that have gone by since he was he, he was anointed as king before this finally comes true. And David might have, in that particular circumstance, been wondering, has God forgotten me? Has God hidden his face from me? Has God left me to wrestle with my thoughts around this? Has God left my enemy to triumph over me? And, and, and if that wasn't the circumstance that David was dealing with when he wrote Psalm 13, it could have been any number of other things because he experienced so many difficult circumstances, so many difficult, devastating setbacks throughout that time, right? He had to leave his best friend Jonathan. He, he had to leave his wife Michael. He lived on the run amongst the Philistines. His family got captured by the Amalekites. His son Absalom, by through treachery, took over his kingdom. <clears throat> Excuse me. And some commentators even believe that maybe he was experiencing a long illness. So it could be any number of things that prompted the writing of Psalm 13 in David's life. And it could be any number of things in our own lives that could prompt the desire to... to uh, express lament to God in our own lives. And I would imagine you've been in that place of lament. Because I can tell you, I sure have been. Several years ago, before I came here, I had this horrible boss. I mean, and, and, and she, she would set up a meeting and she wouldn't follow through. Uh, she would, in fact, meet with the person who reported to me and make decisions when I wasn't there. And she would criticize my work. And I can tell you, that was bad enough. But what really made it difficult on top of that was my own sense of, God, where are you in all of this, right? How long, how long, God, is this going to go on? Now, I knew that God is a God who reveals himself, that shows himself, right? He's shown himself in nature, in Jesus, in the scriptures. But I couldn't see God intervening in my own circumstances, right? I also knew that God doesn't forget me, right? I mean, we know that from Isaiah 49. God can't forget us the same way a nursing mother can't forget her child, Right? I knew all of those things. But what happens when you just don't see the evidence of God's presence in your difficult circumstances? And, and you've had that experience, haven't you? I mean, and some of you are in the midst of that experience. And baby Hope's family is in the middle of that experience right now. Right? You're just wrestling. You're trying to find a solution to what's going on in your life. You just can't figure it out. You have the feeling that the wrong thing or the wrong person is winning, whether it's your teacher or your boss or an illness or, or racism or depression or terrorism or whatever it is. You just have the sense that the wrong person 
is winning. Now, one of the things I notice in this Psalm 13, in this first section in the protest, is that when David is in this situation, he doesn't compose a psalm of praise. He composes a psalm of lament. And he protests the fact that the evidence of God's working in his life is so long in coming. He's protesting how long he's having to wait. And I can tell you when we get to this point, and we all do, we get to this point in our own lives, don't we? The appropriate response is to tell God. Lament Psalms give us the words that we need. They allow us to express our hurts and our suffering to the person who is strong enough, who's powerful enough, to change these circumstances. So we start with a protest and we say, how long, God, how long am I going to have to put up with these intolerable circumstances? How long are you going to not intervene? And I can tell you that in these sorts of situations, you've seen it. You've might have, you maybe have experienced this for yourself. Some people give up on God, right? They say, he's forgotten me. He's too distant. He doesn't care. He's not powerful enough. But instead of here, instead of David turning from God and saying, God is too distant, instead of that, he turns toward God and he addresses God, right? And instead of complaining to people about God, he complains to God about these situations. And so the first thing that's important to see here in this first section, in this protest section, is just that God is the right person to protest to. Now, he's also the right person to petition, all right? And the petition is the next section. So the petition is where David actually makes a request of God. And he has an expectation that God's going to do something about the situation. So let me read that section for us again. So starting with verse 3. Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I've overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. So the petition here, the request that David is making is for God to see David. To not hide his face from David, right? To answer him and to give light to his eyes. Now this this little phrase, give light to his eyes, we see in verse 3. What he's suggesting here, what David is suggesting is that he wants God to give him some relief. And and here's the basis for making that, that suggestion. That those same groups of words are found not only in Psalm 13, it's found also other places, but it's found also in 1 Samuel 14, 29. So perhaps you remember what's happening in 1 Samuel 14 is that Saul, his son Jonathan, all of the Israelites are fighting the Philistines. Long story short, they're not eating. While they're doing their fighting, they've they're not eating. But Jonathan actually eats some honey. And this is what he says in verse 29. He says, see how my eyes brightened 
when I tasted a little of this honey. So that those same words give light to my eyes are the same words as see how my eyes brightened. And so here David is calling out to God to give light to his eyes. That is to revive him. Why? Because he's close to being overcome by these difficult circumstances he finds himself in. Now, this petition, one of the things I want you to notice about a petition is that it's actually the language and the behavior of someone who's in a relationship with someone else. Because here's the thing. You make petitions of people with whom you have some kind of relationship, either a personal relationship or a formalized relationship of some sort, right? You don't go up to a complete stranger and say, give me 10 bucks, right? You just don't do that. So here, David is in this petition is appealing to his relationship with God. And this is where we see that, okay? So right at the beginning in verse 3, David emphasizes this relationship when he says, when he calls God Yahweh Eloha. So that means Yahweh my God, okay? So first of all, Yahweh, that's the name that God revealed to Moses um, when he uh, is... Uh, in that burning bush situation. And so we, we already, that word Yahweh already evokes that covenant relationship that the Israelites had with God. But David here is appealing to Yahweh not only as an Israelite, but also as a person who has a personal relationship with God, right? So he calls him Yahweh my God. And commentators have pointed out that another piece that shows this relationship is that God, David is reminding God that if God doesn't answer, then David's enemy is going to say, see, I've won. And David's enemy is going to rejoice. So David is saying that his defeat would become God's defeat. Why? Because they're connected in a relationship with each other. So here, David, in this petition, is depending on God to be the right person to petition, to bring his request to. Why? Because God has entered into this relationship with Israel. Now, we also know from other parts of the Bible, and especially Exodus 34, that God has entered this relationship with Israel because he's a loving God, right? Because he's a God of love, and we read that in Exodus 34, uh, when uh, God shows himself to Moses, he says, "He says, he, this is who I am. He says, I'm Yahweh, I'm the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love means faithful love that's borne out or shown in the context of this covenant relationship, this relationship that doesn't fail. And and we are in a covenant relationship with God, too, right? This isn't just this thing that the Israelites experienced. We also experience this. And we affirm it every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? This is the cup of the new covenant, right, that we have entered into. And we are in this relationship with God also because of God's love. Right? I mean, we read that in 1 John 4, but the greatest example of that is the cross, right? That Christ died for each one of us. So one of the things that we understand from this relationship that we have with God and why God got into this relationship in the first place 
is that it is in God's character to care about what happens to us. Right? It's in his character to show his love to us. And it's on the basis of that relationship that we petition him in the midst of our suffering. Now, if we were in a contractual relationship with God, that would mean that if one of the parties messed up or violated the contract in some way, the contract would be voided. Right? God would walk away or we would walk away, especially in the midst of great suffering. Right? Especially in those moments. But a covenant is different, right? A covenant means that uh, a violation isn't going to void the covenant. And we, uh, you can read about the violations. There were consequences to violations. You can read about them in Deuteronomy 28. But both parties agree to maintain that covenant despite those violations. And we often talk about a good picture of this is marriage, or marriage is a good picture of the kind of covenant that God has with us, right? And we talk about the fact that the marriage vow is in in good times and in bad times, right? In health and in sickness. In other words, it stands in all circumstances, right? So while there are consequences to violations, the covenant stands. And this is what David is saying here when he's making his request, his petition. He's saying, you're in a relationship with me. I'm in a relationship with you. And I anticipate that you will be present and intervene. Now, by the way, let me just stop here, though, and say this. David is not saying, you have to answer me the way I want you to. Right? He's also not saying, you have to answer me right now. David is also not saying, you have to eliminate all of my pain and suffering. Right? He's not saying those things. But he is asking for God to intervene in these very difficult circumstances. And it makes sense to petition God. Why? Because he's in a relationship with us and he has the character of a person who wants to intervene in our lives. So let me give you an illustration. So Charles Spurgeon uh, was a preacher in the 18th, uh, in the 1800s. He was walking through the countryside with a friend, and he saw on top of a barn a weather vane. You know what a weather vane is? It's that thing that, that turns around depending on which way the wind is blowing. And on top of the weather vane were the words, God is love. And Spurgeon turned to his friend and say, said, that's a bad place for putting God is love as a message because weather veins are changeable, but God's love is constant. So Spurgeon's friend said, you misunderstand the message here. The message here is the, is the, the weather vane is stating the truth that no matter which way the wind blows, God is love. And I can tell you that in times of suffering, it is hard to lean into the relationship we have with God. It is hard to lean into God's character of love. It's hard to ask God to intervene in a problem when it looks like he hasn't intervened in it yet, as far as we can tell. The real test of faith is asking God, in the absence of the evidence, to intervene in our situation. So even in the face of no evidence, 
believers call out to God. They petition God in the midst of difficult circumstances. Why? Because God is a covenant God. He is a God of love. So our last section emphasizes not only is he a God in relationship with us, but he is also a God who is in the business of redemption of hopeless, difficult circumstances. So let me read that section, the praise section. Starting with verse 5, verses 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Now, this section starts with the word but, which is a fulcrum, right? A fulcrum is the, the, the balancing spot, right? So this section starts with but, and one commentator said, which is the fulcrum on which David's faith turns. So let's just point out here, David hasn't been saved yet, right? But he boldly praises God. He says, I trust in God's unfailing love and my heart rejoices in God's salvation. Now, when he says unfailing love, by the way, he's referring to this covenant love that God has for us. He uses the word chesed, which is that that unfailing love, that love that doesn't stop. Why? Because it's expressed in the midst of a covenant, not in the midst of a contract. Now, David here hasn't yet seen God intervene, but he's obstinately depending on God. And even though David hasn't seen the answer yet, he trusts in God's covenant and God's character of love. So in the future tense, he says, I will sing of Yahweh's praise. Why? Because God has been good to me or has dealt bountifully with me. Now, by the way, when we get to the praise section of a lament psalm, I just want to say this. We don't engage in the praise section flippantly. And we don't do this in a careless way, like, oh, yeah, well, praise God. No, we praise God because we're standing on the belief of his extraordinary past, that these extraordinary past redemptions really, really happened. So, for example, we just celebrated Easter. Right where God took the shame of the cross by dying on it. And he took that shame and what looked like certain defeat and turned it into victory over our sin. Right, And his death looked like this hopeless, hopeless, dead-end situation to the disciples. But it was followed by this unexpected triumph, the resurrection. Now, here's my question to each one of us. Do we need any more proof than that, that God can intervene in hopeless situations? So the praise section of Lament Psalms essentially affirm that God is in this business of redeeming hopeless situations, those in the past and ours in the present. Now, I'm wondering if you've ever seen a burl on a tree. I didn't know at first what a burl was, but certainly you've seen trees, right, that have nice straight trunks with a little bump on them, right? A, 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 an outgrowth on the tree trunk. Have you guys ever seen those burls that um, exist on tree trunks? They're caused, those burls are caused by some stress to the tree, like maybe an, uh, an injury 
or a virus or something like that. So my brother-in-law, Bob Masterson, he actually takes these burls, these problem situations that the tree is dealing with, right? He takes these burls and he crafts crosses out of them. Now, why does he do this? Partially to symbolize the redemption of the injury to the tree, but also to symbolize the redemption to the injuries in our own lives, right? To the suffering in our own lives. And it's this expectation here that drives David's praise, that God can bring good out of these difficult circumstances. So despite all the current evidence in your life, all believers, and let me encourage you to call out to God in the midst of your suffering. Why? Because you can be certain that God is the one who hears your prayer and will save you, even if it takes 20 years the way it did for David. So when you find yourself in difficult situations, Protest and complain to God. Make your request known to him. And hang on by faith to the belief that he can intervene. Now, I think one of the most powerful narratives of this is about a young boy who's 17 years old whose name is Joseph. And you all know the narrative of Joseph, but Joseph. But I'm just thinking as Joseph is... Is, is thrown into a cistern, right? I'm wondering, is he calling out to God, how long, Lord, how long? And as he's sold into slavery and forced marched into Egypt, is he calling out, how long, Lord, how long? And after he's thrown into prison because of some lies on the part of Potiphar's wife, is he calling out to God, how long, Lord, how long? And after interpreting the cupbearer's dream and, and being in prison two more years after that, is he calling out to God, how long, Lord? How long? And I think in these moments of suffering and shame, actually, Joseph didn't know the end of the story. Right? He didn't know that God would take those years of suffering and shame in his own life and turn them into the deliverance of a people, a whole people group so that Jacob's family wouldn't starve in the, fam the famine. God redeemed his suffering so that Joseph eventually could tell his brothers in Genesis 50, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So we don't know the end of our story either, do we? We don't know the end of our suffering. All we know is that God loves us, that he has redeemed us, and he has redeemed the suffering of other people. And it is on the basis of that, that in the midst of our own suffering, that we can ask, how long, Lord, how long? That we can ask for salvation from our intolerable circumstances, and that we, in fact, can look for salvation, because we're certain that our loving God is the one who hears our prayer and will save us. Let me close us in prayer. So, so Father, we just thank you for just the amazing uh, power that you have shown uh, in other people's lives 
in terms of redeeming the suffering in their lives. I just pray that you would uh, strengthen us through Psalm 13 and through the examples of the people who have gone before us, these people of faith who relied on you and leaned into your character of love in their situations. We just pray that you would give us that strength as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.